were able to do all the diagnostics right there in people's homes and get the results and do in the moment interventions in a very short period of time, never having to wait, were guests in their home. And as we leave, we get some of the highest patient satisfaction that you can imagine. What's the future of health? Join doctors Jessica Shepard, Gotham Gulati, and myself, Jordan Schlain, as we embark on a conversational journey with prominent speakers, experts, and innovators from the stages of the annual health conference. The goal is to explore the ideas that put humanity at the front and center of our evolving healthcare system. After all, health is about people, isn't it? Hi, I'm Dr. G. On today's episode, we bring you Aaron Denholm, the Chief Nursing Officer of Dispatch Health, where we discuss the future of hospital-at-home care delivery models. Aaron has spent her career supporting healthcare in the home. In 2021, she joined Dispatch Health as President of Clinical Operations and has since taken on the role of Chief Nursing Officer. Aaron works to develop and in some cases, further refine the organization's robust care coordination models, focusing on health equity, social determinants of health, and virtual care strategies. And so with that, let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Health Matters podcast. I am delighted to have Aaron Denholm with me today. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. So just for those listening, you know, I'm very familiar with Dispatch Health, but before we even dive into the work you're doing at the organization, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this industry and, and what's of greatest interest to you. Well, thank you. I have spent the last three and a half plus decades with a passion for delivering health care in the home, not having that care be defined by health insurance eligibility criteria whether it be Medicare or Medicaid, governmental or other. I started as an undergraduate public health nurse in transcultural situations in Latin America and the West Indies before I got into the Part A home care and hospice space. I worked in integrated delivery systems, hospital systems for three decades. And all of my passion and focus has always been innovation. In fact, in the role that I had with Centura Health in Colorado, largest integrated delivery system, I was able to support an act that was then made into law to have Colorado be the first state to have Medicaid pay for telehealth. And that was back in 2006. So I am very curious about all of the things that we can do from low acuity to high acuity in enabling care to be delivered in the home. And mostly because I believe that the power structure of healthcare needs to be shifted to be within the realm of the patient, as opposed to all of the providers and the systems that we have. 
for those who know me as well, I'm, I'm fascinated by this space. And I feel like we're coming back to this era of this old, the country doctor, which is, you know, the individual who, the clinician who goes to the individual, the family's home and they're carrying their doctor bag with all their toolkit of things that they have. And I feel like we've come full circle now and that we're actually realizing, and perhaps it's just the notion of we have the tools available to us now, but we can deliver probably better care to some degree inside the home versus sending them out to the institution. I'm curious before we dive into how that plays out, what's different now? Why are we seeing such a rapid interest and growing interest in delivering care outside of the traditional healthcare system and in, in utilizing the home? Like, What's changed over the past several years that has instigated that interest? That's such a great question. And it's not just one thing. It honestly is the confluence of many things. The technology that is available today has been on a shelf collecting dust for probably 15 years. The difference is that the adoption and the willingness to use it has changed. It is the silver lining of the pandemic. There was nothing like anything I've ever seen in changing providers from the most high acuity providers, physicians, to nurses, to consumers, that was a galvanizing force around realizing we can really do this differently. And there are lots of reasons why it hasn't changed for all this time. We can talk about that later in the program, but I would say that the ability to utilize technology that has been available all depends on the people that need to use it, feel comfortable with it, and is researched so that it can get to a tipping point. Now, is it something that health systems are saying we need to extend beyond our own walls, or is this something that patients, I don't want to say consumers because they don't really want to consume it, but patients are demanding that we meet them where they are in terms of this is how I want to consume my other, this is how I consume my other things. Why can't I consume health the same way I can consume the things I do in retail or groceries or elsewhere? Right. I would submit to you that I think that the boomers, and I'm one of them, very different than the silent generation, very passive, well-studied, The boomers have come around to using technology and there is a consumer demand that I think within the healthcare domain is very different than what has been before. I also think that as we look at the tsunami of seniors that are going to be and are retiring every single day and recognizing that we are not going to have the taxpayer base to support them has been building to a crescendo of oh my God, we've got to do something different. And that, I think, has impacted health plans as well to really pull a major lever that I don't know that there has been that kind of activity before around contracting for things exclusively outside the traditional bricks and mortar. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, it's easy for us to throw around terminology and for us to just assume that we understand what things mean in healthcare, right? So hospital at home probably means many things to different people. And I'm curious if we were to sort of segment, let's, if we segment healthcare into two areas, there's point of entry, 
which is our traditional way. Everything be after that is essentially, you know, your emergency room, urgent care, you know, inpatient health, nursing homes, etc. But then there's pre point of entry care, which is everything at the home to some degree. And there's a whole segment of things that can be offered not in the healthcare system from post acute care, chronic management, you know, things in the built environment that we can do outside of our traditional healthcare systems. Now, Dispatch Health plays a piece of that. And I'm curious how and where you see Dispatch Health falling into the spectrum, if I were to sort of put a blanket term of care at home as a blanket category, where does Dispatch Health fit within that? Great question, and thank you. I would say that Dispatch Health is a unicorn. We have, for the since 2013, look to create high acuity care that really hasn't been done before. And in so doing, building an entire ecosystem that is not just one thing around and within the home. So we started out, Dr. Mark Prather, emergency room physician and entrepreneur, really had a vision about being able to bring highly trained physician, physician extenders, nurses, EMTs into the home for that which did not have the time sensitivity and the criticality that would send them immediately for the need of emergency care. People can wait, as we know in traditional senses, people can wait in the ER for two to three to four hours. Why not, if they are safe to wait bring a fully stocked ER, if you will, to their home. That's how we started. However, over time in recognizing the opportunities, there has been an entire ecosystem that has been built out that includes imaging, ultrasound, moderately complex lab, so that and are these the portable devices that we now have available in they the marketplace? They are. And we, we come in and we're able to do all the diagnostics right there in people's homes and get the results and do in-the-moment interventions in a very short period of time, never having to wait. We're guests in their home. And as we leave, we get some of the highest patient satisfaction that you can imagine. Who wants to go to the hospital? I mean, that in and of itself is, is a hard one to have somebody give you 100% satisfaction on. So with all of those diagnostics, then we as a pioneer innovator have been able to create not only high acuity urgent care, but high acuity care for those that would be admitted to the hospital as well as extended care, those who might need short-term skilled nursing, if you will, that because of their social structure can be safely cared for in the home, and risk population support, wellness care, etc. So, you know, I, I would say that we have a platform that enables us in many ways to provide patients the continuity and the seamlessness that everyone wants to be able to provide and says that they're doing, but not so much. And, and I think that is what Dispatch Health has done through a physician practice domain and expanded it. Walk me through 
an example of how dispatch health for no point in how, how dispatch health gets dispatched and how you determine and triage patients, those who require true emergency services in a hospital that can support their conditions or those who are acute but can still be managed at home. How do you, how do you first think about the tri- Like who's calling who? Is it the patient calling the hospital, the hospital then figuring out and triaging and saying, well, we can dispatch I'm trying to wrap my head in terms of where in the customer or patient journey dispatch health gets called in. Sure. So we have a number of entry points. Let's start with the health plan. If we have a contract with a health plan for Medicare Advantage or commercial population, they're working with their whole physician groups to let them know if you have a patient that needs emergency care, think about dispatch health. Because for many of us, if we have a medical issue, i.e. not an injury, and we're not feeling well, and we call the doctor, the doctor is the one to just many times will say, you know, I think you need to go to ER. So one of the most important entry points for us is through the physician's office. The physician will either call us with a direct admission or a patient can call us. Now, if the patient calls us, we have a contact center with risk stratification to determine if time sensitivity criticality are met, that we can schedule somebody within a very short period of time, a car, to come out and see the patient. We have been working very fastidiously on our IT platform so that we can actually send, once we have scheduled a patient, the patient receives something that's rather Uber-esque. Aaron and John are gonna be at your house in 20 minutes and picture and you can see their route, et cetera, et cetera. So for the, the high acuity care ER physician, patient directly. The partnerships with the hospitals are very important to us. A lot of them with really crowded ERs, they are supporting cars through referrals to dispatch as well. Is that a threat to the hospital? No. In terms of their business? Like if you're treating patients at home and, you know, if their model is beds and heads and, you know, they run that type of... Yeah, uh, yeah. What we have found is that actually we have a number of healthcare systems that are partnering with us in their communities to be able to see people because of their ERs being too full, or especially during the pandemic, they had no beds. So I would say that we have much more synergy than one might think. And for the the hospital substitution program, we have partnered with hospitals in the waiver program that, of course, CMS allowed for with the public health emergency and has just extended. And the outcomes are very important. And we are partnering with them. The piece about that waiver program is that the hospitals have to be the ones to bill for it. So in as much as the entry point to hospital substitution programming, the patient comes into ER, the decision is made, oh, this patient meets the waiver program criteria, and then they are sent home and have the waiver program, if you will. 
We have contracts with many of the Medicare Advantage plans that allow us actually, based on eligibility criteria, to admit a patient in the home. Now, how does that happen? If we send an acute care team out and the high acuity urgent care is what we call acute care. So if that team goes out and this is a patient that has a contract for hospital substitution and it is determined that they really could use that kind of care, then we will admit them to our hospital substitution program. Now, the thing that's interesting about the hospital substitution program is Most people go into the hospital three days, four days, five days, hopefully, and then they come home. Our program is 30 days. And we have an acute phase and then a transitions phase where the the combination of physicians and advanced practice nurses, nurses, 24-7, Bluetooth-enabled devices connected to a virtual RN center, all of that is activated to support the patient. During the high acuity times, we will go out do it rounds like hospitals, right? We do the rounds twice a day. We're able to intervene accordingly. And then when we, about day four or five, we transition them to the rest of the 30 days where we're still supporting them with the virtual call center and the nurses. If we need to activate a higher level team, we will. The outcomes have been really impressive with that. So I, I want to get into the outcomes in a second here, but before doing that, it sounds expensive. I mean, 30 days, I mean, setting up hospital at home, just me visually thinking about it and all the equipment, the staff that you have to dispatch versus having them all in a central location where they can serve dozens of patients at one time. I mean, this true personalized experience sounds expensive. So I'm curious how Medicare, how reimbursement, how do they think about it in terms of a cut? Clearly, there's better satisfaction. There's no question. There's probably better outcomes, which we'll get into. But do the health economics play out the way they want it to? Remarkably, incredibly impressively. Hospital at Home has been around and well studied for over 20 years. Dr. Bruce Leff from John Hopkins has been probably the most published in that regard by the most prestigious journals. All of those studies have been conclusive in regards to positive clinical outcomes and satisfaction. And the costs have always been at least 20% less than if a patient had stayed or been given the care in the hospital. In fact, the study that we have just concluded on shows that we have been able to save anywhere from $5,000 to $7,000 per episode for every patient that we have provided care for. Is that just because they have a lot of overhead that they have to cover in terms of what they charge as a hospital versus... Absolutely. A lot Absolutely. of inefficiencies, yeah. And, you know, the other component, which is also in our pa- our white paper, has to do with, interestingly enough, for people who are seen at home instead of the hospital, there are less laboratory, there's less imaging, there's less testing, even while the outcomes are better. Why is that? Is it the incentive structure? Is it? Uh, I don't know. I mean, is it an incentive structure? I mean, or hospitals is it are that still getting paid off of volume to some degree. Right? They, the more tests, the more labs, the more. I think that there's also the thought of everyone's practicing good medicine and you're here. I know you have this complaint. Why don't we look at that too? 
I would say that I have opinions about that. I don't know that it has been well-researched. What I would say is that we are able not only to stay focused on a patient's condition and be able in the moment to intervene, but you know, there's, there's something about being in somebody's home that allows us the data around the social structure the gaps in care because of social determinants of health. We have found at least 22% of the patients that we have served had food scarcity that allow us to connect them to community resources substantively, right? Very rarely are you going to find a patient that goes into a doctor's office and says, you know, I don't, I'm hungry. There's a pride factor. There's privacy, etc. What we are able to do as guests in someone's home is be able to really meet them in a, in a more intimate and relational way and have, I think, more trust. And so what can you do about that? Are there programs that you can you get social workers involved or, or food programs? Oh, there is or? a cacophony of community services and resources that have been enabled by certain software platforms that in given markets, you can connect right away to. So our providers can, through our electronic medical record, connect directly to a whole resource that has transportation assistance, has food pantry assistants that are right in their community that then we connect them with. It's to your point. The question's a good point. So you collect the data. What are you going to do with it? Closing the gap is really most important as anything. And it's very interesting to me that probably in the last five years, health plans have gotten more and more interested in this whole understanding of social determinants of health because it does impact 75% of somebody's health status, right? And as there is thought about how are we going to take care of the Medicaid population, the dual eligibles, those that are Medicaid and Medicare, there's got to be something that we can do pulling levers to address those gaps in care. It is well-researched and known that those that have gaps in care have higher medical costs. Are there predictive elements that you're seeing in some of the data that you're capturing that can essentially provide warnings, red flags in someone's homes who aren't, you know, perhaps they're, you know, not the most hygienic homes or certain things that might sure. with certain conditions. Are there ways that you can essentially recognize when to maybe follow up or when there might be red flags? I mean, which sort of gets into the question of is, is there a role for artificial intelligence to layer on top of your data that can then even further keep them out of the system by predicting certain behaviors or outcomes as a result. Of I think there's huge potential with AI. I, you know, we all know that, you know, we are just at the very beginning of the very beginning and some, you know, are pretty concerned about it. I think that there's no question that we're going to have much more understanding about how better to support people independently in their homes as long as possible. So you alluded to this white paper, which I understand has revealed a lot of interesting measures and outcomes as a result of the, the study or report. Can you share with me some other highlights from this uh, report that we may not have touched on yet? Sure. Thank you. You know, very consistent with Dr. Leff's research of 20 years, the fact that in your home, 
you're not exposed to what we call nocosomial infections, right? Secondary infections that can occur because you're in the hospital. We, for the thousand patients that we studied, have had zero secondary infections. Very consistent. And it makes sense, doesn't it? You know, decreased delirium and decreased falling. When you look at the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, and they estimate over 25, $25 billion of health costs due to secondary infections, that's no small thing. So the hypothesis for what we can do in the future is pretty amazing. The thousand patients that we have seen, average age of 76, it's a little mind-blowing, even for a clinician, on average having eight comorbidities, in other words, eight other diseases in total that although we're going in because of one instability, maybe with one disease, the other diseases are going to have impact, right? And we have been able to prevent emergency room visits at a higher expense than what we're providing, and about half of what the national average is for hospital readmissions. When we think about the imperative, honestly, with the number of people who are coming into retirement and needing care, we have to contemplate in a much bigger way how we can expand these programs. Clinically, they absolutely prove to be better, understanding health, et cetera, customer satisfaction, patient satisfaction, over 95%, that's 30% better than the best performing hospital. There's something really exciting about it. And the whole ecosystem that can support somebody, whether they're highly acute or moderate, or even preventing, when you think about risk populations and supporting them through predictive understanding of high risk and rising risk patients, what can we do before they ever need a dispatch to come into their house? Well, I'm truly excited to see what more gets revealed by by you, you know, studying longitudinally the impact that uh, dispatch is having. It's funny, several years ago, a couple of colleagues and myself did a, a meta-analysis study on the top causes of morbidity and mortality in health systems. And it turns out that iatrogenic causes is the number one. Things that we're doing ourselves, like you talked about, nosocomial infections, falls, et cetera, that don't necessarily, I mean, at least what you're seeing in your report, happen less, if not none, in, inside the home versus inside the hospital. So huge, not just cost savings, but impact on the patients themselves, because who wants to end up in that scenario? So I, I'm truly excited about what Dispatch Health has already done to date and what the future holds. Thank you for being on the show. Is there anything else that you would like to uh, touch on that we haven't discussed? There's one last thing that I would say. Many people have asked and wondered if having somebody at home who is acutely ill makes it a higher burden for the caregivers or the family members. And we have looked at that and have anecdotally, though we're going to look at it qualitatively as well, been affirmed that actually the family and the caregivers have 
had 85% satisfaction with their loved one being in the home. When you think about what you have to do when a loved one is in the hospital, you have to go to the hospital, which is different than just going to your and mom and dad. And oftentimes it's probably a family with schools yes. and activities and it's tough yes. to sort of navigate. Absolutely. So having their loved one be where they're used to coming and going they say is I mean, a little bit a of a compromise burden. too because it's also very invasive on privacy too to be in someone's home mm-hmm. like you said you're a guest in their home and it has we to be are. treated as such we are and very mindful of that that's great yeah. well thank you so much Erin this you. great conversation thank you thanks for listening if you're still there I'm hoping it's because you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did we will be releasing new episodes regularly And to stay on top of the hottest topics, simply subscribe to Health Matters. That's H-L-T-H Matters on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. See you next time.